Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you, pull them out, open them up, turn or tap your way to Philippians chapter 2, where, uh, you know, we're going to talk through something that's a little nuanced. It's a little, uh, I don't know how the French say that word, but you know, it's a little shades of, of information that you need to keep thoughts in front of your head while you also hold other thoughts. So you're going to need your thinking caps this morning. I'd encourage you to have your copy of the scriptures open so that you're ready later today to go back to this passage, to look at it, to think about it, fill up my inbox with, you know, questions and or maybe even some challenges from, from what you're hearing and what we're reading. Because if you understand this well, if we can get this well and install it sort of into the programming of our church, we're going to be able to tap into something that is a powerful motivator for what God has called us to do. If you were here last week, we talked about how spiritual pride can be a motivation for getting after the work that God gives us to do, that there can be this part of you that wants to do godly things or Christian things because you want to be seen among sort of godly people as a godly one. You want to be able to tell yourself that you're better than other people. Oh, that sounds gross. Yeah, it is gross and everywhere, right? Like it happens all the time. I was able to kind of write last week's sermon fairly quickly, because unfortunately, I get spiritual pride. I get it. I got to confess it. But the thing about pulling out bad examples is that you then have to fill that void with the right thing, the good example. If I take spiritual pride as a motivator away, then what do you put in its place, if pride is the, the corrupted version, the negation of what is supposed to be our motivation, well, what is supposed to be that motivation, specifically in Philippians 2? Because God has, has filled that medicine cabinet of motivations for the Christian. There's lots in Scripture. But there's one in particular I want us to focus on. If we only think about what we don't want and don't think about what we do want, well, we're going to go back to old habits. If you speak to a nutritionist and the nutritionist tells you what not to eat, that's helpful. But you got to eat something. If they don't tell you what to eat, then eventually, you know, you just kind of go back to the candy bars. If, if the scripture says, do not murder, you say, okay, but you got to tell me now what to do with my Friday nights because if you take away an activity, you got to put something in. So if you take away spiritual pride, what do we put in? And in Philippians 2, I think you can see the commands, and it's clear that what he's saying in between the commands is a, a motivation, but I don't see it until you think about it with a little more nuance. So let's look at the, let's look at the commands, Philippians 2, 2 through 4. He's saying, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. So he's taking away the false motivation. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He's adding in another command, another goal. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay. Big command. Then at the end, after what we read last week, it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, therefore, so again, pulling on, uh, dependent on the, the verses up before it, but it says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Mm. We got a whole list here. We got a list of goals. These are, these are your resolutions. These are your, these are your job descriptions. Where do we get the motivation for it? I, I think you got to be careful here, kids. I think it's possible for you to see this stuff and you just sort of place yourself as an audience member rather than a participant. I mean, we, we're part of our tradition. We're part of kind of modern, you know, the world around us a little bit here. It's the way that we've developed the church. If you sit here, it kind of feels like a theater. You know, the lights are down there. The lights are up here. You sit down and you're quiet and I'm up here and I'm doing what I'm doing. And then at the end of that time, you got to leave because you know the next crowd's coming it feels it feels like you're a spectator rather than a participant or if you're looking to feel like a spectator rather than a participant there's ways in which you can sort of justify that but you got to hear what he's saying because he's not saying it to me only he's saying it to you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with weighty expectation. Wow. How? There's goal, there's process, but there's also motivation. What, what makes you get up, drink some coffee, and want to like fight for this? And how do, you, how do you push yourself to go? Well, again, it's in the therefore. It's in verses 5 through 11, but... But I want to show you the sticky piece, and then I want to try and resolve it from Scripture. But it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he's in the form of God, didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He's God, but he empties himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbles himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And this next phrase, just let it sit in your head, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so see what happens here. Lots of motivations in Scripture. We're studying Philippians 2. What's the motivation here? Because what it sounds like is he's saying, don't be proud, don't do things out of selfish ambition or conceit. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Oh, okay. Not proud, but humble. But what's the motivation? Because he humbles himself and then God glorified him. He went down and God brought him up. And he brought him up to the tippy top. He brought him up as high as you can go. 
so that all of us will one day bow and confess before him. So is he saying, humble yourself now so that God will glorify you? Is that what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to motivate ourselves, not with pride now, but with some sort of like, you know, washed off pride to be? I want you to really hear this because it matters. I have two categories in my head or, or kind of like natural categories for the way in which you do good things. You can either do them out of love, which I think is right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and serve God. I want to hand God a gift. I want to do something because I love Him. And you think about children that draw pictures for their parents. And if you have a kid and they've got spare time, they do and you provide them lots of paper, we did, you will get a limitless supply of drawn things. They'll just keep doing it. And in our house, <laughs> we gave them tape. I don't know why we did that. But they just start, like, papering the walls with this stuff. And it's their room. You know, you don't really go in there. So you just, all of a sudden, you turn on the lights one day, and wow, you know, they really have been ambitious. But they'll do these pictures, and they'll bring them to you. Because they love you. Probably not all their motivation. It's part of it. There was a time when they'd draw them and they'd put them on our pillows. And they'd like sneak them in. So after bedtime, they'd take them, they'd go put them on our pillow. So while we're downstairs having our time, just me and Rachel hanging out, then we go to bed and there's this little picture on our pillow. Love you, Mom. Oh. That's a good motivation. Love. But there's this other motivation, which is pride. What we talked about last week, it's the idea that I'm going to do this and then the people around me are going to be like, look at you. Wow, you. We need to rise your stock up higher. We are impressed by you. So, yeah, 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 that's good juice. You, gotta, you want to keep going after that and so you're going to work harder. You're going to study longer. You're going to deprive yourself more fully. You're going to do in order to well, that's, that's pride, and that's actually awful. That's something that Scripture condemns because what you're doing is you're trying to put on godliness, not in order to honor God, but in order to replace Him. You want to put yourself on the throne, and you want to say that because I've done these good things, because I know how the world works, I don't really need God anymore. I'm not going to pray. I'm going to requisition. Do you know the difference? A prayer is a request. A requisition is, it's owed me. I'm filling out the form, now give it. Oh. You're not relating to God anymore. It's very transactional. It's petty. And eventually, it's the attempt is for you to be Him. It doesn't seem like that when you start, but that's what the Scripture describes. So, I've got love and pride. I understand those two categories, but it seems like there's something else that's being described here. It seems like... There's a category for the moment when, in Jesus' words, we'll stand before the master and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What do you do with that? What's the category for God? Not people. God looking at you and saying, yeah, yeah. Well done. 
I mean, maybe it's warmer than that. I think of it as like a coach. But maybe. What is the category for that? Because I can understand not caring about God or, or just going hog wild after whatever you think is good and just sort of ignoring God. And I can understand pride and trying to sort of trump God. But what is this other path? We have to understand it because Jesus holds it forward as a possibility, and yet it seems like a trick. It seems like you're kind of getting baited in, and then if you ever actually took it, he would slap your hand for pride. But, but there is a category here, and this is where we need some nuance, and this is where I think C.S. Lewis helps us a lot. He had this sermon called The Weight of Glory. I mean, he's just a man. I mean, this is not Bible, but it's a helpful, I think, look at some of these topics. And he does describe uh, a lot of things in that sermon. I'd commend it to you to read it. You can get it pretty easy. You can just Google it, and it's like the second link. You can just have it for free. You can read it. But he says, he summarizes, that heaven or the motivation that we're kind of described to, to want heaven is, is heaven is described, it's promised, one, that we shall be with Christ, headline, two, that we shall be like him, three, with an enormous wealth of imagery, that we shall have glory, four, that in some sense we will be fed or feasted or entertained, and five, that we'll have some sort of official position in the universe, ruling cities, judging angels, being pillars of God's temple. You can see he's hedging with each one of these, some sort of, seems as though we shall in some way. I mean, he's, he's hedging a little bit because he's trying to just sort of categorize what is described in the New Testament and Old. He's trying to help us to see, but, you know, there's still some stuff to be figured out here, and yet it's here. And this concept of glory is part of this Philippians 2 passage and its other places. In Colossians 1.27, it says to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you. He's talking about the gospel, the hope of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Probably where he got the name for the sermon. Beyond all comparison. So what is being described? What do we need to, to see? Well, in the first place, we're going to put this under the gospel. We are going to separate it from pride by understanding that Christ is the one who is crowned with unparalleled glory because he actually did it. He actually did obey. He actually did, out of love, empty himself, became one of us. He actually did, out of love, totally obey God perfectly. And that doesn't mean he just didn't murder or commit adultery. It means that he also did everything that he did, every moment of every day, from waking up to going to sleep, and even as he's sleeping. He did everything that he did out of a total love for God and love for neighbor. Well, the first command that God gave Moses was that you're not going to have any other gods before him. It means that everything you do should be out of a desire for, love for, for the glory of God. If Jesus was totally obedient, it means that every moment of every day he did everything that he did for the glory of God, from the love of God and love of neighbor. He actually did it. And then doing that, he actually went to death went to the cross 
So he didn't just live perfectly. He took on himself all of our deformity, all of our sin, all of our moral filth. He took upon himself the corruption that is the whole of the universe. And taking upon himself dies because he's perfect and yet takes our sin upon himself. He breaks death. He rises. He comes back. And he doesn't just come back. He comes back because the death that he died was the payment for all of that corruption. The the payment is received. It can be that we are forgiven. It can be that we can receive from Christ that forgiveness, what he did in paying for our sin. If by faith we'll trust in what he did, then his obedience, his acceptance before the Father gets put on us and our sin gets put on him. That exchange takes place. And now we can stand before the Father, not as perfect because Christ is the one who actually did it, but stand in Christ as perfect. Does that make sense? I hope so. That's the gospel. That's what we're going to be preaching all the time. So if it doesn't, you know, we'll say it again next week. But Christ is glorified in this moment, and we are somehow glorified with him. We are somehow brought before the Father, not on our own behalf, but, but in Christ. And yet, in Christ, there's still this sort of moment where God says to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. What do we do with that pleasure? Yeah, it is possible to run right into pride with it, but, but what do we do with that pleasure? What is it supposed to be? Well, again, Lewis, there's this, this glory that is specific to the inferior. From the superior to the inferior. I want you to think about a dog. If you've got cats, cats don't care what you think at all. So don't think about a cat. If you've got a dog, a dog cares about what you think. A dog is very attuned to your perspective on that dog. So when you come in and you say, good boy, what does he do? Oh, that tail starts going and he's happy. But if you come in and he's not been good, and he can tell that in your tone, how does he react? It's the best thing in the world, those internet videos where they're dog shaming. (laughs) Because they come in and the trash is just everywhere and they're like, Mr. Smuckers. You can see the dog doesn't have facial features, but the eyes and the tail and the just sort of like, I can't, I can't, I can't even look at you for shame. They feel it. But again, when they see your face and your face shines upon them, they did it. Good boy. Oh, they're going to pee a little bit. They can't, <laughs> they can't hold the joy. But is that pride? Or is it the natural response of a dog to his master? It's important. Think about it. Think about a child with the parent. You know, I've, I have parents. They actually go to this church. If I, when I was a little kid and I brought them a picture. Good job. What am I supposed to feel about that? It's possible in my sin to be proud. But it's also, there's also this other thing, this legitimate moment where I say, thanks. 
actually feel good, that I made them feel good, that I did a thing that they said was good. I get older, I play basketball. Every now and again, there's a good game. And they say, hey, good job. Can't, can't that feel good? You know, now I'm an old man. Knees are getting bad. And I do this instead. Is it okay for them to say, hey, that was helpful? Now, I can immediately take it and flip it upside down and say, yes, it was. Worship me. That's what pride does. <laughs> or isn't there just a moment before I corrupt it? Isn't there just a moment where something right happened? You think about art and an artist. The artist is putting in all of this work, skill, perception, truth that they're communicating. And there's a moment where they blow the dust off, the final shavings are off. When they, when they sign the painting, because that final stroke has been done, and they step back. And they say, yes, I did it. Now, in some ways, this is more helpful as a third example. In some ways, it's less helpful. It's more helpful because he did it. He's glorifying himself. When, you, when he says, well done to you, there's a point in which you are glorifying him. And you see, that's even what Christ did. Because it does say the last phrase in that 2 through 11 is, for the glory of God the Father. He does receive that glory. It's also somehow broken because a, a painting is totally passive. It doesn't do anything. It just is. And the artist does what he does. And yet, even in that, we do see what God is saying in Scripture. It's what He does. In the first part of Philippians, in 1.6, He says, I'm sure of this, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's working in you. But don't I do it? But you're saying that He does it? Well, Philippians 2.12 and 13, what we just read, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, <clears throat> work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Huh? Yeah. We'll talk more about that as we go. So putting, putting all of that into either together because you understand it or at least just on the same shelf because you're, you're receiving it, there is some sort of a moment. There is some sort of a day in which you'll stand before the Father and He will say to you, well done, completed, got it. And you will be, because of him, because of what he's done in you, you will be something that has glory. Lewis, as he's ending his, his sermon, he said, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible, meaning everybody around you who will exist forever and going to have or not have, of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which... If you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Now, be careful. Your pride is, is sitting there waiting to jump in here. When he says God and goddesses, he uses a lowercase g. He lived in this sort of medieval imaginative world in his own head. 
He's not saying and never would say that you can be capital G God, that you can replace the I am. No, of course not. But he is saying that the, when the, the moment when you're completed, when you finally become this perfect image bearer, then like a mirror, you will display something of God's glory to the universe. And that as you display it, you will in some sense be glorious. But of course, it's possible that you don't choose that. That when you see his face, you won't see that. That moment where God says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, is not guaranteed. In the parable where Jesus talks about it, he talks about three servants. And this ruler, this master, gives to his servants, according to their ability, a certain amount of his money to work with and invest until he's going to go away. And then when he comes back, he's going to see how they did. And the first servant, being something uh, of a more capable servant, receives five talents, a talent being like a unit of, of money from the master. And he invests it. When the master returns, he's able to give to the master 10. Wow, well done. The second guy, somewhat less able, is given by the master two talents. And yet he invests it. So the master comes back. He sees, I've got four. Well done. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to set you over much. Then there's this third servant. Much less able. He's only given one talent by the master. Whether it's capability or intention, he's only given one talent by the master. And read what Jesus says. He also had received the one talent, came forward. So the master's back, time for accounting. And the one who had the one talent, he comes before the master saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went, I hid your talent in the ground. And here, I'm going to give it back to you. you. You didn't lose anything here. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. Okay, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? If that were true, if that's really what you thought, then you ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers. And in my coming, I could have received that 0.01%. But... Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And, to he, and he will have an abundance. But the, from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness, that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are Jesus' words. Hope Church preaches the Bible. Jesus said that the way you relate to God will be reflected in that moment when the judgment happens and you see His face. You will see His face and the divine glory will shine on you and say, well done. Or you will see His face and you will say to Him, I knew you were hard I knew you were unloving. I knew you had unreasonable expectations. So, here. That's what this guy had to do. This guy had to rewrite who this master was in his own head. 
because he didn't want to work, because he wanted to work for himself, because he wanted to enjoy other pleasures instead of the, the work that the master had given him, fill in the blank. He decided not to do what he was commanded to do. And in order to justify that, he wrote up this whole new personality for who this master was. And he corrupted him in his own mind in order to justify himself in his own mind. He lied to himself about himself, about his master, and about the reasonableness of the work. But there was a point at which that lie came home to roost. When the master said he's not going to play by lies, he's going to tell him truth. When you see his face, what will he say? If you're a believer, receive this for what it is. Motivation. Get to work. I understand a lot of people kind of float in Salt Lake and they're trying to find their spot. Great. But find it. I understand a lot of people have been burnt by, by people that, that should have been safe people and they weren't. Okay. But you still have to get to work. So find a spot. Get to work. If you're here at Hope Church and you're going to stay, awesome. We got a lot. The lines are open. We would love to plug you in. There's a lot. Because we got a big task. If you're a believer, receive this. Let's do it. If you're, if you're a believer, though, separate what we're talking about from pride. See pride for what it is, but also see God saying, well done for what it is. And yet, if you're an unbeliever, I want you to think about what you think about God. You've been given a life. You've been given breath. You can argue about to what degree you've received from God, but here we are. What are you doing with it? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to ask you if you're really objective in the way that you think about God. Because if, if you have to do things His way and you don't want to, well, that's motivation to not believe in Him. Let me just ask you to weigh the arguments a little bit differently and ask whether or not you're really objective. And instead, let me encourage you to see the beauty of this situation, the beauty of this deal that's being offered. Because what He's saying is, no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, that He can take you if you'll just come to him in faith, he can begin a work in you that he will bring to completion. That no matter what you look like, outside or inside, now, he can make you glorious. He can make you beautiful. That no matter where you're starting right now, and when Jesus came, it was the people who didn't have much that were the first to say yes. It was the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the outcasts and the lepers who were the first to say, heal me. It was the one who, was, who had a lot going on and felt like they were pretty impressive people who had the hardest road to Christ. It's the rich young ruler who goes away sad because he had much wealth. Know yourself. But wherever you're at, he can take you if you'll just receive the gift that he's given you through Christ, and he will work you. When Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, he wrote it from experience. It wasn't poetic license. He'll work you but he will also bring to completion a great task. He will create from you great art. 
such that you can be with him forever. Now, there's nuance here. Hey, there's a lot going on. You got to put on thinking caps here. If some of this is tripping you up and hard for you, please talk to me. Challenge me. We're all Bible people here. If you've got Bible, great. Please correct me. But also to encourage you to go read 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 today. It kind of puts all this together in another way. Very helpful. And ask yourself, how are you relating to God? Are you on the sidelines? Are you an accuser of God? Or are you a son or a daughter that's a worshiper of the Lord, working for His glory? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do ask. I ask this a lot of you, but now when I just ask it out loud, that whatever I've said today that is unhelpful, you would just erase from people's memories. And that the word that you have spoken, though, would stick, whether or not people want to hear it. Father, that you would change us from proud people to humble people. That you would change us from self-involved to passionate about your kingdom. That you would open our minds to see things that maybe are bigger than our minds can resolve and yet continue to work, Father, for your glory and for your kingdom. Pray that you do these things for your, Lord, for your glory and our good. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.